1: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
2: Look ahead. Imagine more. Gain insight for your industry with forward-thinking advice from the professionals at Cone Resnick. Is your business ready to break through? Find out more at KohnResnick.com slash breakthrough.
1: This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. He's an old friend. His name is Wes Gray, and he is not your usual quant slash money manager. He is the founder and CEO of Alpha Architect, Um, and he's also an unusual guy. He uh, comes out of uh, University of Chicago in an MBA PhD program and decides to take a little time off in order to join the Marines, which he did as a captain, went overseas in Iraq, where uh, he served as a, an information order officer embedded with the Iraqi army, and um, wrote a book about it called Embedded, and really a fascinating uh, and unusual background, discusses uh, throughout his career how Iraq and and the prosecution of war are in some ways very similar to investing. Alpha Architect is a a quantitative firm. Uh, Wes crunches a lot of numbers. He's a big believer in factor investing. He uh, has long since uh, been a proponent of both momentum and value, which is a somewhat unusual combination, but they are two of the six main factors uh, that are out there. I thought the conversation was absolutely fascinating. If you are a fan of quantitative investing, or if you enjoyed our previous podcasts with people like Emmanuel Derman uh, or Meb Faber or any of the other Quants we had spoken with, uh, you'll really enjoy this. So, with no further ado, my conversation with Wes Gray. This
2: is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
1: My special guest today is Dr. Wesley Gray. He is a former captain in the United States Marine Corps. Wes graduated magna cum laude uh, from Wharton. He earned both his MBA and PhD in finance from the University of Chicago before becoming a professor of finance at Drexel University. He currently runs the site Alpha Architect as well as running an asset management shop for high net worth individuals. He is the author of three, soon to be four books on quantitative investing, as well as numerous academic articles. Wes Gray, welcome to Bloomberg. Barry, happy to be here. So let's talk a little bit about your background because it's kind of unusual. Lots of people take some time off between college and grad school. What did you do between college and grad school?
0: So what I did is basically right out of undergrad, I actually directly enrolled in the University of Chicago PhD program at ripe old age of 22, spent two years there getting hazed, you know, fighting against Russian math champs to compete. And then after two years in a PhD program, you you get to your comps stage. Mm-hmm. And I passed the comps and I said, you know what? I'm 24. I'm hating finance at the moment. I need to do something that I always wanted to do, and that was serve in the military. So I asked for a special four-year sabbatical uh, to basically serve in the Marine Corps, and left for four years, which is probably the first time that's ever happened, I imagine, in Chicago finance PhD program history, and then came back and finished up. So let's not
1: skip over that middle part. Mm-hmm. Those four years were the middle of the Iraq War. You were embedded with the Iraqi army as a captain or a lieutenant? What was your rank uh, at when that When I point? was
0: there as a lieutenant. Lieutenant, I called yeah, you a first captain? First lieutenant, yeah. Well, For, I got out as a captain, but okay. when I was serving there, as a first lieutenant. A-
1: and your nickname uh, amongst the Iraqis was Jamal. H- how did that come about?
0: Um, uh, basically I was the, the Intel guy in our, our MIT team, military transition team. And so the Intel guy is supposed to know how to speak the language, know, how to influence the people. And one of the things you learn about reading about Arab culture is it's really important to learn the language and hang out with the people in order to, you know, be able to better influence them. So I used to hang out in what they call the Swahuts. Uh, and I was down there and they would always call me Mulazm gay cause they can't say R's very well. And, and I was like, you know what, guys, Let, let's try to find a language.
1: So gay instead of gray.
0: Gay instead of gray. Uh, you know, and it's usually not the greatest idea to walk around with a bunch of Marines when, when the Iraqis are calling you Malazam gay. You know, you just get some ridicule sometimes. Um, and, and they just couldn't say it. So I was like, can you guys name me? And they literally had like a naming party. There was probably 50 Iraqis in the uh, in Swahuts, maybe, you know, thousand square foot, you know, cardboard building type thing. You think about it. And uh, they came up with Jamal. And then I was called Mulazm Jamal. And uh, I kind of, like, I actually, that was my identity. Even when I came back, I still felt like I was Mulazm Jamal.
1: That, that's funny. So how did the Marines and your, your time in, in Iraq help prepare you for a career as a quant in, in finance?
0: Uh, I'd say the the biggest thing is just understanding that in all endeavors, humans are involved. And when humans are involved in any sort of decision-making or activity where there's a lot of emotion, stress, and chaos, they do crazy things. There's certainly a level of emotion involved there. And And I think in the military, what you learn is it's all about standard operating procedures, training to do things that seem... You know, mundane and and dumb and checklist-driven now. But when you get into a chaotic situation, you thank God you did that, so you don't rely on your natural reaction. You rely on your standard operating procedure. You know, a perfect example might be, I remember I was in the palm groves in an area called Haditha, which is kind of, you think out in Al-Ambar province where a lot of the ISIS Mm -hmm. guys are now. And I was on Iraqi patrol and literally a, a dude gets shot in the chest 15 feet in front of me. You know, natural reaction is hit the deck, you know, go to the ground as fast as possible. Another natural reaction, which you're not supposed to do is go run to the person who just got shot and see what's wrong. They have wrong. a
1: bead on him, and now they're and have they're a bead gonna on go you.
0: shoot me now. So, what, but what you train to is when there's a casualty, the first thing you do is hit the deck, find cover, figure out where the other bad guys are to make sure you secure the area. The only way that you you have a reaction to do that is you have standard operating procedure and you train to that standard. Just like in financial markets, I think a lot of the time, like let's say there's a fifty percent drawdown in your portfolio. Your gut reaction is sell everything. but that's not what you should probably do. so you you need to have a process or something in place before you hit chaos. So when you're actually in chaos, you you know you react in a more rational, I'd say, logical way. And I, I think the you see a lot of that between military and investing,
1: you know, I started on a training desk. The head of the desk was a former marine jungle combat instructor. There was someone else who was a former seal on the desk. And what I always found fascinating, wasn't just the standard operating procedure for what to do. It was preparing emotionally for the firefight. Like how can an investor prepare emotionally for those big drawdowns?
0: Yeah. So I I think it's just like in in the military, you try to train as close as you can to fight and have ultimate faith and confidence in the leadership and the decisions and the process that you believe in. And when you have that, I'd say- uh, belief in what you're doing, and and you really put a you know good faith effort into working on that. When you hit chaos, if you believe in your training, you're more likely than not to stick with that process.
1: I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Wes Gray. He is a former Captain in the Marines served as an embed with the Iraqi army on behalf of the U.S. Marines. He runs a shop called Alpha Architect and has written numerous books on quantitative investing. Let's talk about a book of yours that I really enjoyed, Quantitative Value. When we think of quants and we think of value investors, we really don't think of those as having a big overlap. Mm -hmm. Tell us how you came to the idea of value that was quantitatively driven.
0: Sure. So I'd start out with as being a total Bible-thumping Ben Graham, intelligent investor, stock picker. I did that for 10 years, my own personal money. And thank God, I had the opportunity to eat a lot of humble pie along the way. (laughs) And I was thinking, you know what? This whole Warren Buffett, Ben Graham idea makes total sense to me. But after you get engaged in the activity of stock picking, you realize that you get very emotionally involved, and even if you understand the biases, you've memorized, you know, Kahneman's book. Even if you know it and you know how the biases influence you, you start to realize you still can't control against the biases. So I thought, hey, you know, fundamentally, value investing makes sense. Buy cheap stuff everyone hates. Great. The problem is and hold it for and hold it for a long time. Hold your nose when inevitably it. Totally underperforms for potentially multi-year stretches, um, but at the same time, how can we implement this process in an objective, disciplined way such that I can pull out monkey brain from making bad right. decisions, uh, you know, <laughs> from trying to be a stock picker, because I learned my lessons basically on
1: that. That's quite fascinating. So some of the things you reference in the book, obviously the benefits of of using a quant approach is you're taking out the human elements. One of the things you reference in the book is the importance of finding the highest quality stocks. So first, what does it mean when we say a stock is high quality? And then how do you screen for those?
0: Sure. So so stepping back, it's really important when we when we talk about quality in the context of investing to, to understand, given it's already cheap. So with value investing, the way we look at it, you have to be buying the distressed cheapest securities in the market only within the cheap does quality start to help add value so if you just look at quality as a standalone you know characteristic of a security it's unclear that it adds any quote unquote alpha or edge it's all about looking at quality given you're in the cheap stocks everyone hates so so the
1: step 1 is screen for an expensive stock step cheap. 2 is now, within those cheap got, stocks, yeah. so how do
0: you identify
1: what's quality and what's not sure. amongst the cheap yep. uh, so, equity?
0: So, given we're in the in the cheap bin, which are securities, obviously there's something going on. That's why they're cheap. We, we have a table, like the we call it the quality table. There's two legs to it. There's understanding the fundamental quality of the business, and there's another thing called current financial strength. So, in assessing economic moat, we try to objectively ascertain. Is this company a good business? How do we do that? We look at things like long-term geometric means on return on assets, return on capital. We look at long-term free cash flow generation, profit margin dynamics. Like if you have 50% margin year in, year out, that's probably good business. And we want to quantify the quality of this business to essentially generate returns, hopefully in excess of their cost of capital. But that's not enough. That's leg one because we're dealing with cheap stocks that have issues. So we can, one, ascertain that they're historically have some indication of being a good business, but then current financial strength is now a 10-point checklist where we want to make sure, are you going to survive the next few years? I.e., are you making money? Are you paying down debt? Are you repurchasing stock? Is your current ratios improving? Uh, it's literally like a pre-flight checklist. So are you a quality business, organically, and do you have the current financial stature to live for the next few years? So eventually, hopefully, you can get revalued up to not be a value stock anymore and hopefully be a growth stock in the future. So is it safe to
1: say that companies with strong balance sheets have stocks that outperform or is that overstating it?
0: I think it is. I think cheap stocks- With strong balance With strong balance sheets-, sheets on a risk adjusted basis and from a, you know, betting standpoint are better than cheap stocks with bad balance sheets. That makes sense. Independently, I- no. Because there's a few reasons. Why everyone knows Google's great. Facebook's great. Procter & Gamble's great. So what's the edge? And then secondly, it's also easy to buy those names mm-hmm. for someone to recommend them. So it's not Emotionally. Like emotionally. Or,
1: or are you referring to the principal agency issue?
0: The principal agent problem. And also just emotionally, it's easy to own high quality securities. But when you look at it objectively from like an evidence-based standpoint, it just as an independent analysis tool I we think quality is not that valuable and it doesn't make any sense it would have edge where cheapness everyone hates these things they're hard to own like it's crazy they're yeah. hard to hold there's a lot of pain involved and it, unfortunately you know just like in the Marine Corps no pain no gain you know <laughs> that basically holds in financial markets unfortunately as well so let's talk about
1: stocks that can cause permanent loss of capital there's a chapter in the book where you discuss that. How do you avoid these stocks? What do you look for to avoid
0: owning names that are going to go down and never come up? The sure. classic value trap. The value trap. Yeah, you, you you catch the falling knife as they call it on the way down. So uh, three of the or basically there's there's two or three ways you can think about permanent loss of capital. And these are one would be like a fraud or a manipulation. So if it comes out that the business you thought that was making a billion dollars a year is actually making zero. That's going to be a bad news for equity holders. <laughs> I, w- I would thing. guess. Yeah, same thing with manipulation. Like, oh, we thought we had this. Now we have this other thing. And then the other one that's that's obvious is financial distress or bankruptcy. You, you can own the best business in the world, but if you're an equity holder and this firm is in distress, the debt holders might end up owning that great company, not you as the the stockholder. So, so, So by
1: the time that news comes out, it's too late. What can yeah. investors do- To avoid owning those names,
0: what signs should they
1: be looking for?
0: Sure. So so what we do is we leverage a lot of, uh, I I guess you call them technologies in in academic literature where people have built up statistical constructs to try to predict who's most likely or red flagged as being a manipulator, fraudster, or potentially going to be in a financial distress situation. And we just at the outset say, hey, if you're extreme red flagging on any of these sort of things... You're not in our. You're not even going to be in our potential. Just we're, we're from removing the universe. you. Yeah, because we don't want to buy your falling knife situation.
1: I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Wesley Gray. He is a retired captain in the U.S. Marine Corps, an MBA and PhD out of the University of Chicago. He now runs Alpha Architect, which is a unique quantitative asset management. Firm. And the first book he wrote was called Embedded, which is something that you pretty much pens right after getting out of uh, the Marine Corps and after spending. Was it four years in
0: Iraq? Is that about right? That yeah, was four years in the service. In the service, uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I did. A, it, I was there for a standard Marine seven month deployment mm-hmm. in a place called Haditha, uh, which is in Al Ammar province. There. So, so what motivated you to sit down and write a book when you got back that had nothing to
1: do with finance? That was strictly about your time with the Marines.
0: What it was is, you know, I remember before the Iraq War, we had Colin Powell show us that little white you know, bottle that you're all going to die. And, and I was like, you know, this is kind of maybe a survival war. This is a pretty important thing. I'm a buyer. I, I'm a believer. And then, you know, so winning the Marine Corps, not really for that reason. I just want to do my service. But when I was, I thought, hey, this is a, a mission that makes sense. You know, it's a win-win for America and, and hopefully for the Rockies or what have you. But then after actually living and being embedded with the people, I started to realize that, you know, culture matters. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're in, a, in this war now, we're really taking on a 50 to 100 year commitment because we're going to try to change culture. and Not easy to do. Not easy to do. And I would argue it's very, very time intensive and costly. And, and that's fine as a decision, but let's weigh that against the potential benefits. Um, and that book just really opened my eyes to understanding, I would say, just Arab culture in general and, and how the way they think about the world is just so much different than us. And then the idea that we can impose, you know, our ideas and, and how we think about the world on them, it just doesn't work. And I have, I have an analogy here. It's like, you know, it's a fish trying to tell me how to breathe underwater. Like right. I understand I need gills and I understand I need to get oxygen, but it doesn't work for me. Like, it's just, we all understand each other kind of, but we just, it's not going to work. Um, and, and that, that was the biggest insight and why I had to share it. Cause it changed my mind about the whole thing, 180, about why are we here and is this really a positive NPV project for U.S.?
1: So so you can't really just walk into a country with a completely different set of mores and cultures and say, here's how you do it. That's not going to fly?
0: No, no, yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it seems uh, obvious and trivial after the fact, but yeah, but beforehand... Uh, but, you
1: know, that's the classic hindsight bias. Yeah. It's easy to say these exactly. things in 2016. Yeah. In early 2003, a handful of people were warning about that. Everybody remembers the big Er Eric Shinseki, the army general, warning about... You're not going to do this with 100,000 troops. You need a half a million troops. Uh, it's more than just hearts and minds. It's really a long process. Nobody wanted to hear that before you go in.
0: Yeah. The, the biggest insight I got, actually, and also it's a lot of the things I cite and embedded, is just my conversations with the actual Iraqi people about why they thought we were so weird and crazy uh-huh. and, and the things that we Did just- Did they? that Was at the read? Is these yeah. Americans are crazy? Um. They tried to explain to me their perspective and and a perfect one is, okay, so you guys want to go bring democracy and freedom to the Rocky people and you've done that. But here's the problem. When you let a country of caged lions totally free out of their cage, you don't give them freedom and democracy, you give them anarchy. Because right. you guys in America have a lot of implicit structures, either legal, culturally, sure, or trust. Like we're tribal here, guys. Like like we don't have a lot of that kind of ether in your culture there. That... It's
1: institutionalized here. There, exactly. In fact, you wrote the tribe matters much more than the state there.
0: You got it. So so the idea that you can bring us freedom and democracy and that's a great thing and you're helping us. No, you're giving us anarchy. And everyone has a house with one AK and 30-round 762 mag. And guess what? If there's not enough police, if I don't like my neighbor- I'm going to go shoot him. I'm going to go shoot him because that's freedom. And you guys don't do that in America. You're not really that free. You're still constrained by civil laws and and all these other things. And the idea that when you give us freedom, you somehow are going to help us out. no. You're, you're, you're destroying all law and order and anything that resembled a society here. So, so let's bring this back to
1: finance. So, what did you learn from the experience there that you were able to bring to the world of finance?
0: You know, I think it's uh, a lot of times like coming from a you know PhD, University of Chicago. Everyone's rational. This is how the markets work, and yeah, they're probably right. But that fails to consider. Humans. And there's humans operate in the economy, not agents, rational agents. So I think just like when when we go to a situation like Iraq on paper, yeah, go bring them freedom, democracy, and they'll become like America and everyone will have a, you know, a white picket fence and three kids. But then you start realizing, wait a second, there's cultural issues here. There's human elements. Same thing in finance. Yeah, you should go buy cheap stocks and do what Warren Buffett does. Why doesn't everyone do that? Well, because there's humans involved in and it, finance. And
1: it's really, really hard <laughs> and to really, do. it's really,
0: really hard. And, and we always need to consider the behavioral human element of decision-making.
1: I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Wes Gray. He runs the quantitative asset management firm, Alpha Architect. Let's talk a little bit about quants on Wall Street. So first question, what do people misunderstand
0: about quants and their models in the world of finance? Sure. So I, I probably can't speak on behalf of all quants because like every walks of life, there's a lot of varieties within that segment. In one corner, when, it, when you talk about a quant, you think about the physics PhD who's never read a finance book ever. He's data mining, building crazy models and C++ and doing whatever they do. That, that's not the type of quant analysis that we bring to the table. We're, we're essentially economists that are trying to think about how the machine works. And we just leverage quantitative analysis and tools to basically allow us to conduct what we consider like scientific method as best we can. Mm-hmm. So we have competing hypotheses about how the world works. We grab data. We test these competing hypotheses, and we're, we're always trying to get better. Evidence-based it, investing. Evidence-based investing. It's not just, let's data mine because we've got better computers and more physics PhDs. Like We're, we're basically fundamental investors that use quantitative tools to, to help our process and, and how we think about things in the world.
1: So from your perspective, then, models are really never finished. You're constantly testing them and seeing, how can I make this better? Where can it be improved? Or what may have changed in the market that means that this model is no longer delivering any sort of advantage or edge that it might have been previously?
0: Sure, there, there's an element of that. and then, But the other element is, is understanding that when you start going down the model creep uh, situation, it's, it's like the old game where the kids, like the, the little girl first says, hey, you know, the, the princess kissed the frog. And by the end of the circle, it's like, you know, Spider-Man beat up He-Man. So Mm -hmm. it's a total different story. And it's all because you have small little changes where you end up in a total opposite place you wanted to end up in the first place. So when when we build models and when we think about it, it's very, very time intensive and R&D intensive up front to build the simplest most robust model we can Simplicity
1: beats complexity.
0: Definitely, 100%, because we want to look for the, what is the real signal here, not the noise, and let's just focus on that signal. And what we've found is that in financial markets, frankly, nothing's changed. Human behavior is pretty constant. And incentives, specifically like this principal agent, delegated uh-huh. asset management problem, those are two constants. And they they derive a lot of predictions about what works and what doesn't work. And we keep coming back to the same themes. Value, buy cheap stuff. Momentum, buy relatively strong stuff. And trend, be in good trends. And everything we look at, at having memorized like most of these databases at this point, it's it's those three simple muscle limits usually drive all other perturbation of anomaly or, or factor or whatever the heck so, people are looking at. So
1: how do you have momentum and trends mm-hmm. as the same group? Because normally when you're saying buy trends, you're buying strong stuff going up. Sure. But value, you're buying weak stuff that everybody hates.
0: Yeah. So so really the way we look at uh, value and momentum in particular is they're really two sides of the same behavioral coin. So if you look at value... One of the arguments for why it outperforms is obviously it could be more risky, and we can't discount that. That's Mm -hmm. surely one component. But there is a mispricing component we think, and And that's what is that that an inefficiency? It is, but it's it's hard to arbitrage, which we can discuss. But what value is driven by? We think, and by we I mean like the academic research community is an overreaction to bad news. Essentially, they throw the baby out with the bathwater on average. Momentum it turns out, is there's two competing theories. Like we're talking about relative strength momentum, which is the uh-huh. classic kind of stock selection momentum sure. that academics discuss. And that, the preponderance of the evidence is that it's an underreaction to positive news. So value is an overreaction ah, that's to bad news. The evidence in general seems to suggest that momentum is more of an underreaction to positive news that's being signaled in in the price, but because people are overconfident in their own information set, even though the price keeps telling them, yeah, and there's disposition effects. You know, you're supposed to let your winners ride and cut sure. your losers short. What do people do? They cut the them. opposite. So right. there's a lot of kind of organic, you know, fake supply that comes on the market for high momentum stocks, and, and they're the only mom-
1: because they're a winner. People are uh, hey hit the bed. Yeah, nobody. I when I started, I used to hear this all the time, mm-hmm. and it turns out to be terrible advice. Nobody ever went broke taking a profit.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's the and worst- And that's just
1: supply for Trent, for ex- ex- momentum Exactly.
0: Ex- it just puts supply into the market when maybe the fundamentals should be, the stock should be worth 100 and it starts at 80, but it can only go to 90 because as it starts moving and who wants to be the last guy owning it on the highest peak- Fear you, of looking stupid. Yeah, fear of looking stupid. So I love
1: the symmetry of overreaction on the value side, underreaction on the momentum side. Let me throw a little bit of a curve ball. Sure. Again, what I learned early in the career, which may or may not be true, is, hey, you know, managers, when you look at the big institutions, hedge funds, mutual funds, endowments, they have their favorite names. And especially if it's a fund that has a lot of 401k or that sort of inflow, there's only so many names they're going to buy. And as fresh money comes in over the transom every week, they put it to work in the same names. And that's Mm -hmm. why you see some form of of persistency of price action. Is that a fair description of momentum or is that just a narrative that yeah, rationalizes Yeah, I, I think
0: it? that's basically like the fund flows arguments. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a new paper that I, I can't remember. It's some new like journal finance paper. It's a theory paper that's trying to explain the value and momentum effect via fund flows. Uh-huh. Where like one fund is like losing because they own like the you know the value stocks so they're getting out of there then other funds they're they're winning they own the winner stocks and then you know, because they're winning, they get more fun flows, and then those keep moving. And eventually, like the value stocks get too cheap, they mean revert. Right. Momentum stocks, unless you keep staying in the high momentum, eventually crash and burn. Right. And, and there's all these theories about trying to explain value momentum, not via behavioral, like overreaction to bad news, underreaction to good news theory, but through like a fun flows argument. There could be something to it. I think, I think all, no one really knows exactly how and why all this works. But it's all about what is the preponderance of the evidence kind of tilt you towards because God only knows what really explains value so, momentum. So you
1: really don't need to know why it works. You just need to know this works, this doesn't stay with what works, avoid what doesn't.
0: To some extent. And, and you know, Aziz has, has a great quote about it, like we all knew the the world was flat before we could or it wasn't flat before we could explain exactly you know, why it was some actually Some of us around. knew,
1: some of us still held out.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and value is something I think that's way more understood because it's more intuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, buy cheap stuff everyone hates. You get kind of a distress pre Premium, uh, sure. you know, careers premium. Where momentum, you know, this we just wrote a whole book dedicated to trying to understand this. You know, there seems to be this underreaction to the good news, but there's another thing. When I started reading about like what Soros talks about ref- with reflexivity, mm-hmm. at some level, price action itself can actually influence fundamentals. And here would be an example. Let's say we're out in the valley, like Silicon Valley. We have Google, who's got great price action. Right. LinkedIn, who just dropped the hundred, you know, fifty percent until half. recently right. here, but so what do you think when most of your comp and it's all a human capital business is tied to your stock price? LinkedIn, Suddenly,
1: LinkedIn engineers are, exactly. are up So, grabs. so
0: their price movement momentum fundamentally is changing their fundamentals, and if marketplace can't anticipate kind of the second derivative or nonlinear change, they'll always kind of underappreciate the benefit of good prices. Cause you also get lower cost of capital on the street. If I'm a high flying stock, every banker in the world is going to help me go sell that overpriced stock to fund acquisitions and what have you. Mm-hmm. If I'm a total loserville stock, you know, I got to pay cash. Like,
1: like LinkedIn? is. Yeah. That, is now, that the now I got to
0: like pay real market cost of capital and you're at a competitive disadvantage compared to this company that can, you know, Kick until, out overvalued stock to do acquisitions. Until
1: Microsoft comes along and buys you at a nice, sure. nice fat premium. So, so there's so, a,
0: there's momentum's complex, I would you, say. You mentioned momentum and
1: you mentioned cliff-assness. Yeah. Uh, am I correct in saying both you and Cliff had Eugene Fama as your thesis uh, advisors at, at
0: Chicago? Is that right? We have more similarities than that even. He was also a Wharton undergrad. Right. Uh, <laughs> so unfortunately- And I- both of your- your dissertations were on
1: momentum to the guy who essentially invented the efficient market hypothesis.
0: That's right. So so we apparently like a lot of pain and anguish and fighting uphill when we probably don't have to. Maybe that's a shared characteristic of uh, Cliff and I is what it seems. You guys have put out a few ETFs, you've worked and advised
1: on other ETFs. How has the exchange traded fund shift changed the game in terms of cost and execution?
0: I think it's it's revolutionized access to retail. I would say more typical investors. In the old days, you could always get clean, process driven factor exposures as an institutional investor, but you never could do it as a retail investor with tax efficiency and reasonable fees. And now the world is your oyster. You can go on your you know Schwab account and buy, you know, a really great factor exposure for low cost with tax efficiency and full transparency. And I think that's revolutionizing the asset manager business as we speak.
1: So if people want to read more about your uh,
0: writings and your research, where's the best place for them to find you? Best place is just go to alfarchitect.com and sign up for the blog and that's, that's how we communicate to our audience. We have been speaking with Captain Wesley Gray, formerly of the
1: U.S. Marine Corps, now with Alpha Architect. If you've enjoyed this conversation, be sure and hang out for our podcast where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting about all things quantitative. Be sure and follow my daily column on Bloomberg.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
2: Are you looking to take your business to the next level? The accounting, tax, and advisory professionals from Cone Resnick can guide you. Cone Resnick delivers industry expertise and forward-thinking perspective that can help turn business possibilities into business opportunities. Look ahead. Gain insight. Imagine more. Is your business ready to break through? Learn more at slash breakthrough. Cone Resnick, Accounting Tax Advisory.
1: Wes, thanks so much for being so generous with your time. Um, Got it. So there's so much stuff to go over. We blew through so many questions. Um, but I, I really enjoy, uh, you know, Wes. I know Wes for a good couple of years. I, I've followed Alpha Architect for a while, and um, everybody in my shop uh, loves reading his work. Uh, He is another one of the collection of people who are really—and I think you made this clear during the the radio portion—he is evidence-based and data-driven. So much of of finance is filled with myths and heuristics and and shorthand rules of thumb that turn out not to be true— Looking at the actual data um, really makes a uh, really makes a, a big difference. So let let's go over a few questions we we didn't get to, including a quote of yours that I that I really like, and and I don't remember which book this was, but you said, "Sustainable alpha requires sustainable clients." What does that mean?
0: Sure. So. I've always been puzzled with this question of we find this factor. it generates these excess returns. Why is this there and why will it continue? because you know or sorry and, and why uh, why hasn't everybody found this and stayed with it if
1: it's generating exactly excess returns?
0: and you have open secrets called value momentum. Right. value as a strategy has been around for a hundred years. Momentum was talked about like also 200 years ago. So it's not like these are secrets and yet they continue to work. So I needed to intellectualize, how is this possible? And what I started thinking about is is I started thinking about behavioral finance and the two real building blocks of it, which are one, understanding human behavior and two, understanding institutional incentives to arbitrage bad behavior. Mm -hmm. So most factors... Exist typically because there's some sort of expectation error on behalf of investors that creates a dislocation from fundamental prices.
1: So that, that would be either the overreaction to bad news exactly. or the underreaction yeah, to bad like news. Yeah, something
0: like that. Because you got to have someone can't be a perfectly rational buyer and seller because then prices would never deviate from their fundamental value and the Fisher Mark hypothesis would hold. But clearly there's overwhelming evidence that that happens. But the question is, why does it sustain? And so that's where we got to look at the incentives of those who manage the capital. And for easy things that are easy to arbitrage, like if we see a $20 bill on this table, well, let's grab it. What if we see a $20 bill on the table, but there's a grizzly bear over it? Like, is that rational that a $20 bill is there? No. But the problem is to pick up this $20 bill, there's a grizzly bear there. So sometimes it's, it's not frictionless to arbitrage prices, which is a core underlying assumption of the Fisher Mark hypothesis right. is that competition will always drive prices to fundamental because it's assumed it's easy to arbitrage. But that is totally not true. And I would say the biggest issue with quote-unquote arbitrage on things like value or momentum is career risk. Because to do those strategies, they're really long duration kind of expected winners. But in the short run, they can get destroyed relative to standard benchmarks.
1: We, we were discussing the pain trade.
0: The pain trade. Exactly. And pain trades, ironically, are the exact trades You want to own if you want to have a sustainable out-of-sample chance at outperformance. Because now there's, you you want to have a credible reason why other people on the side of this trade are not making a good decision. Over overreaction, bad news; underreaction, good news, or what have you. Then on the other hand, we understand. Well, what are the other competitive players in the market doing, and why aren't they already doing this? And it's usually because they like their jobs a lot more than they like actually taking advantage of anomalies.
1: That's the famous Keynes quote, better to fail conventionally than succeed unconventionally.
0: Exactly. And there's tons of research about this. It all boils down to what they call the principal-agent conflict. There's there's a classic theory paper, um, Andre Schleifer and Rob Vishny, in Journal of Finance 97, it's called Limits of Arbitrage. And they make this very simple point. We all know what works. The problem is in the short run, may not work especially relative to other stuff and to the extent that i can't credibly convince my investors that i'm not an idiot even though i just lost 20 points to the index and they pull my capital i'm actually not in a position to take advantage of this so i kind of hold back so the only way to really exploit true active anomalies is you need to, one, have a process that takes advantage of some bias problem, but then more importantly is you need to couple the capital that's there to exploit and make sure it has the same duration as the anomaly it's trying to exploit, which is long-term. So long-term duration
1: on the capital, long-term duration on the anomaly, but short-term human behavior getting in the way.
0: Exactly. And in, in, in its analogy is like the bank that, that we discussed earlier, where it, a bank lends long, borrows short. Great most of the time, but sometimes you have a run on the bank. Right. Same thing with value strategies, long duration opportunity that more often than not gets coupled with short duration capital. Sometimes there's a run on the bank. And when that run on the bank occurs, the winner in that trade ends up being the Warren Buffetts, the guys that just hold on to these things like grim death and uh, will not sell.
1: I have a friend who runs a a value hedge fund, if there's such a thing, and he says he'll go through the pain trade for quarters and years at a time. And he said he's been doing it for 40 years. He knows when the portfolio is going to start outperforming, because usually just before he starts getting all sorts of inquiries about redemption and people have had enough. And it's usually at that moment when, when the wheel is turning.
0: Definitely. We, we, we know multiple multi-billion dollar hedge fund managers with heavy value focus that are literally out of business because of the back half of 2015, because deep value just got destroyed and right. redemptions just overwhelm their ability to convince the capital state.
1: So, so let's talk about uh, career risk and let's talk about running money in in real time mm-hmm. you run a model you run multiple models multiple etfs mm-hmm. but you run a model that essentially is two sleeves one is value and the other is is the momentum side that's right and invariably one of those two sleeves and by the way I've explained this to people and they're like so wait they first they screen for value and then they screen for momentum no these are a dual, model where there is simultaneously offsetting value and momentum, uh, two different screens and two different pools of stocks. But invariably, one of those sleeves is getting shellacked. Usually when one is doing well, the other is doing poorly. Number one, how does that make money over the long haul? And number two, what happens in the real world with all but the most savvy institutions or individuals who may have money in a portfolio like that?
0: Sure. So, so the way um, that value and momentum work in a combination, where, as you mentioned, it's not about an integrated package. It's about pure value focusing on that religion and then pure momentum focusing on that religion combining the two. Mm-hmm. And they happen to have this very great dynamic relationship where they're like yin and yang. When one is blowing up, the other one, on average, tends to be working. So you get amazing diversification benefits. Whereas if you look at either of those strategies as a standalone basis, you know, you're know you going to want to jump off a bridge. It's too volatile. But that combination basically gives you more survivability from like a human psychology standpoint. Pure value and pure momentum combined ran in a very active way, can still have opportunities to have multi-year underperformance. But it's more sustainable than just being a pure value person or a pure momentum person mm-hmm. where you could go for 5 10 years in theory of underperforming and who can do that even i would have problems you know sticking to the model probably and i'm like a cold <laughs> believer in this stuff so um, so what
1: do you say to somebody who says hey i'm in this portfolio for 3 years i understand it intellectually but you're underperforming the benchmark by 40 basis points for 3 years How do you communicate? Well, that's part of the model. That's not unexpected. Yeah. And soon it'll be outperforming, and by a substant by 500 basis points. How do you communicate that? So
0: the the way we communicate it is: this is not for everyone. It's for we have a very segmented component of the marketplace where we need to identify long duration capital that's really sophisticated and has minimal agency conflicts, where their career. Doesn't is really amiable. To no what we're consultants. Doing. No consultants. No, it's it literally who wants to take care of their money best? The guy who owns their own money. Because they actually have Horizon, they don't have careers, so they're not going to fire themselves, and they just want to maximize their best chance of long term expected compounding. Mm-hmm. That is the segment. That we talk to. That's a
1: really specific Very niche. Very
0: specific niche. And the reason we're so hyper-focused on that niche is going back to that sustainable active framework where right. you need to couple long-duration arbitrage with long-duration capital in order for it to be a, a victory. You, That's the only way you can believably exploit these anomalies is the capital the, t- the source of capital and the education of that capital and its ability to stick to the program is more important than the nuance of your model. Yeah, like if We can do a billion perturbations of buy cheap. Right. They're all going to be 99% correlated. Do we think ours is marginally better than Joe blows down the street? Sure. But you know if you stuck a gun to my head and said, which value model do you want? I'd be like, they're all good. That's not the hard part. The hard part is making sure the money that's in it is... Able to actually exploit it. And it's the I, duration. The duration mismatch. of that. Yeah, and so we. That's why we have this saying: like most products on the street, they're they're sold, not bought. Right. For our strategies, we say no, no. We have to have our products be bought, not sold, because it's more important that our clients and investors understand explicitly. Maybe even more than we even understand it, how and why this works, because it's not its not about us being smarter than the next guy. There's already 100 PhD guys around here that got higher IQs than I could ever dream of. That's not our edge. Our edge is getting the capital matched with a reasonable process that's good enough for our, you know, not... 200 iq brains that's going to be that's the buffett trait basically yeah. so let's talk about your dissertation with eugene fama
1: we we mentioned that he was your your advisor yep. what's it like pitching momentum to the father
0: of the efficient
1: market hypothesis
0: well, so, so cliff did and momentum to Cliff fastness of yeah, aqr cliff assness. i actually pitched him on value exclusive. I wasn't going to touch the momentum pain trade and right. a dissertation because I, I wasn't that wild as Cliff was. Um, but what I did is, you know, I know I has always been a stock picker, reading Ben Graham, Warren right. Buffett stuff till I was blue in the face. I believed that that was the way of the world. Um, and so obviously, you know, you have the most famous guy in the world that says, no, that's never going to work. <laughs> Screw this guy! I'm gonna figure out how to like, you know. Let's see if we can outsmart this guy. So what I did is, um, I'm sure if you were like Joel Greenblatt, he sure, had, yeah, the little he, little
1: book little that beats book, the market, great, blah blah blah.
0: Yeah, great book, great ideas. He has this organization called Value Investors Club, um, which is a, it's basically like an invite-only group of all these hedge fund managers and really smart kind of fundamental stock pickers. Um, and he'd been doing it since 2000. I was like, hey, this is a really great. Data source where there's all these like full scale stock pitches from the buy side.
1: Let's look at how it's done over time. Let's see. Let me it's... guess. They stunk the joint up.
0: Well, no, actually, interesting enough. Well, it's kind of, but in an indirect way. <laughs> right. So when you actually look at the performance. Of a, as a whole, they're actually pretty good. Like these people oh, really? add real value. It's unclear that if you paid in their funds after the net of fees, taxes, it et cetera, added value. Right. but there's certainly evidence that these guys have some skill. And then especially when you get that segmented down to like the small value names, right. there's. No doubt, these, this group has a ton of skill.
1: There's a shortage of information. There's not a lot of yeah. coverage. These, There's more risk. There's a whole bunch of reasons why their, small value. When you read
0: their thesis, a lot of these guys are talking about long duration anomalies. Right. They're like, hey, the sell side's crazy because they're trying to beat the... So a lot of it made intuitive sense. Um, and it was all good. I literally read every single one of these stock pitches, cataloged it. I had them all database by like, what did they mention as to why they liked this idea? What have you? So, anyways, write this. Thing so that up. was for your dissertation. One, PhD one part dissertation. of it, yeah. I had yeah. a theory paper as well, which is beyond this discussion. But um, r- write this thing up. It actually says that these value investors actually do have skill, and you know, efficient market hypothesis. It, it just it seems to be some slack in it, which is fine. Um, you know, so so I sent it off to him, and, and of course, I you know, the first email I get is. Basically, no, this is wrong. Your conclusion's is false. Um, <laughs> so I'm like, oh, great. I just wasted a year of my life and I'm totally screwed. But you
1: have to, you can, he, I'm told he's pretty open-minded. He's very open-minded. Asness said, listen, I think you're wrong. Prove I'm wrong. I, I'm not correct.
0: Exactly. So, and, and this is my like, oh my God, I'm dead moment. So of course I run down. I'm like, you know, and everyone calls him Prof Fama. I'm sure like Cliffaz is priced. I would never call him. Like by his first Gene. name. Yeah, he's just, so
1: Gene, let me tell you why you yeah, don't know yeah, you're no, talking He's about. just too, he's too studly. <laughs> right. Uh, like,
0: I just feel like, you know, I don't want to. So
1: many people, I have a lot of, res- I'm, I'm not a big EMH guy, mm-hmm. although I, I, the, 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 the weak version of it makes sense. Yeah. But there are so many people I have all this respect for who just sing, say the world about him.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. A little off track, but as just a human being, you know, the guy grinds every day. He's super honest, super humble. Works his face off. Like I don't care if he's baking donuts. I right. like this dude. Right. Um, he, he happens to be a Nobel Prize winner. Oh yeah, and that's that awesome. <laughs> but but it's more about a fundamental respect for just right. his work ethic, his whole and, process. Yeah, what he's all about. Like not even the fact he's a financial economist. I just like his his way he carries himself. You so know that's why I, I, call him I said
1: that. the exact same thing about Charlie Ellis, who was a guest on the mm-hmm. show. Who and I and I after the show we walked downtown. I spent like an extra hours with him, and I came away with like this is the finest human being I've ever met in my life. And yeah. I'm hearing the same sort of thing from yeah, you. same
0: thing. Just good dude. Like like if I was in the Marine Corps and I could transplant him 50 years earlier, I Put want that in guy in fox my foxhole. Yeah, like this guy's good to go, it, regardless of what he knows about finance. But so back to that, I, I ran down there, and and it was the same thing. Like as Cliff said, he's very very. Open minded, empirical, evidence, scientific focus. Like if you got the evidence, you run the right robustness test, like all good. Um, so go down there and you know, in my dissertation in the abstract for this particular paper, you know, I, I made an overstated claim. I said, value investors beat the market. You know, he's like, no, the sample of value investors you analyze beat the market. And so literally it was like that. Two or three word difference that because semantics matter and that kind of stuff. Because Co- one change. is
1: an overstatement and the other is within the subset set of value managers, there are that some. I analyze right.
0: They and, clearly have some skill, but you can't say that value all investors value investors beat yeah. the market. Uh, and I was like, all He's right, being great. very precise, very precise, which was a great lesson. And then, and to be more precise on that particular thing, this is not really in the dissertation because it's this is a little bit too practitioner focused, I would say. Mm-hmm. But after the fact, we said, Wow, this is incredible. You have all these people that spend all this time incredible effort in data collection, information, come up with a thesis on the stock pitch. Um, I'm really curious, can this be quanted out? Turns out that we looked at like that quant value algorithm, which basically is, is essentially a, a computer version of what the Value Investors Club guys do. Buy cheap, high quality firms with a ton of analysis on like the, the quality component, but cheapness is, is, a, is a primary. Turns out that The correlation between just buying like a super active, cheap, high quality basket is essentially the same and very, very highly correlated with kind of what quote unquote the alpha generation is from these stock picker people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's you know, what is alpha? What is beta? Who knows? Um, you know, it, it, alpha is just an intercept on a regression where if you put enough factors in there, obviously alpha is always zero, but to some extent if, you know, super concentrated, wait, when
1: you say obviously alpha is always zero, but is it always zero?
0: It is. If you keep adding factors that explain the variance, because, because alpha. In, in so like, you
1: risk adjust it. You you once you once you go through all those different dimensions. Sure. Uh, since we're talking about Chicago, yeah. eventually you can rationalize where all that alpha comes, and eventually alpha becomes beta.
0: Yeah, yeah, exa- exactly. Because all, all it is is alpha is literally just when you calculate this stuff formally. Beta is the coefficient on the factor. Alpha is just kind of the average intercept, the kind of the extra you get that's unexplained for. So The, like the mom-
1: deviation that you're looking for why it occurs.
0: Yeah, a- after controlling for all these other quote-unquote risk factors. But let's take momentum, for example. Okay, let's say we think momentum is, is alpha. If you run momentum and you control for market, size, value, blah, 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 you're going to have a huge alpha. So what do you do to control for the alpha momentum? Throw a momentum factor on there. Now what happens to momentum strategies? They have no alpha. So now is that because they they don't work and they're not mispriced or is that just because you controlled for the momentum factor to say that momentum doesn't work anymore? Well, no, momentum still works and it's been embraced in a factor, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that factor is a true risk factor. What if the returns associated with it are associated with mispricing problems, mm-hmm. not like fundamental risks, like it covaries with your future consumption or whatever you know fancy you know macro or model that some economist is coming up with? And so I think the problem with the the idea of alphas and betas is alpha is an intuitive concept is excess return controlling for a bunch of risk, but the mechanical construct, it's a statistical item and it can be totally manipulated where obviously all alpha can become beta because you just put the alpha generator on the beta side and you can go buy it. But just because it can be beta, it doesn't mean it's not alpha. doesn't
1: mean it's not real or at least for that subset.
0: And it doesn't mean it's it's not easy to exploit, right? Because momentum is a great example. Momentum is underperformed as a long short factor for arguably five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. Everyone's like, oh, it's dead for now. Yeah, one of my old bosses Chris Gates he wrote the paper like the long world's longest back test. They get data back to <laughs> right. 1800 and he actually explicitly says in the abstract momentum factor has underperformed for 10 year cycles like 7 times.
1: So this is this underperformance totally. recently of momentum.
0: Yeah, it's not no
1: all that operational. Yeah,
0: it's just So a so one trade. of
1: the, one of the things you mentioned before about the the two two issues you look at which is the behavioral side mm-hmm. And and the principal agent side. So I would imagine someone like you looks at the Fed with QE and ZERP and all that stuff and says, yeah, we don't care about that. It's not what matters is is the behavioral and the agency issue, yeah. not all these externalities.
0: It's all about what is the signal? What is the noise? The signal is the hu- it's driven from the humans evolved in the game. And the dynamics and the rules of the game they play, and how that shapes their incentives, that doesn't change no matter what. I don't care about GDP, what the Fed says, because it's irrelevant. Human behavior staying the same, staying the same, and human incentives are staying the same in the institutional construct that we currently live in, which is primarily driven by a lot of delegated asset management.
1: That, that's funny because as we're as we're recording this, the Fed is meeting and. Uh... Literally, the news is coming out the second, and we won't even talk about it because it's meaningless. Instead, let's, in the last 10 or 15 minutes I have you, let's get to some of my favorite questions. Um, we, you mentioned Cliff Asness. Mm-hmm. Uh, who else uh, were other quants that you, you admired or who were mentors of yours? Uh, tell, tell us the people who, who influenced your approach to investing.
0: Sure, I'd say the to answer directly like the quants that I admire. Obviously, Cliff Asnes, I like a lot. He does value momentum. H R is a great firm. Uh, you know, Booth at, at sure. DFA is great. They figured out how to capture small value premium. And I think probably the most under-respected or underappreciated quant is Jack Bogle at Vanguard because indexing is a form of systematic quant investing. It's just you're you're systematically buying these market cap-weighted passive indices. And he, for all intents and purposes, he is a quantitative systematic investor. And clearly that's done a world of good for society and his investors.
1: His alpha is, we recognize that the cost structure is the most important element in investing. Yeah. And if we could do everything we can to reduce the cost factor, yeah. that's going to... Our, our beta is everybody else's, is actually a form of alpha. Yeah. If only you give it enough time.
0: You, yeah. Cost and taxes... Or if you can minimize those somehow, that that is always the answer. Now, and that even they talk about like active, active is only bad to the extent that it's the expensive. cost of achieving it. The net benefit is not positive; it's negative because it goes in taxes and fees to some idiot.
1: People, <laughs> people are always surprised when I say, "You know, Vanguard has a trillion dollars in active funds." They're like, "Really?" Has anybody written a paper or 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 a column? And and I may have to if nobody has. Mm-hmm. Jack Bogle, the quant.
0: I don't know if anyone has, but so we're, now you've a, now
1: you've forced me to do this. That's what's going yeah, to happen. Yeah, I think uh, he
0: might be the world's greatest quant. That, just that no one really uh appreciated. It. I, I,
1: I'm gonna have to quote you in this and and sure. you, you've just given me an idea. Now I have to get this out before the podcast goes up. So uh it it'll it'll be pretty interesting. So you've mentioned Buffett, you've mentioned Graham. What yeah. other investors have influenced your approach?
0: I would say um not much beyond that. Like Graham taught me about you know thinking about businesses or or stocks as businesses. Mm-hmm. Buffett actually didn't add any thing onto that, but I just like his like transparent approach and the whole idea that integrity is everything. And in the end, that's what you live and die by. And he has that old quote where you know you know integrity spends a lifetime to build, right. five minutes to destroy, right. which that has nothing to do with investing, but it has everything to do with investing.
1: Well, and, it has everything to do with working in the investment field. Exactly. And it's always you know my my favorite. Line is no one has the patience to get rich slowly. Yeah, and the people who are in a hurry invariably run into trouble. You got it. it so, it's amazing. Let's talk about books. You mentioned yeah. uh, one or two earlier. What are some of your uh, and fiction, nonfiction, investing, whatever? What What are some of your favorite books?
0: Yeah. So unfortunately, I'm I'm not a one of my weaknesses is I'm very pragmatic, mm-hmm. and I just read stuff that. <laughs> it helps me get better. And so better. you're reading more academic papers. Yeah, than I, you I read. Are. I read a lot of journals for books. Some of the things that heavily influenced the way I've thought about things. And I know you know it very well, like Dan Kahneman's book. Thank sure. You, fast and slow, Absolutely. epic. Another one is you know Thaler Sustine that nudge book. Sure, the whole idea of like libertarian paternalism. I uh-huh. thought it made a ton of sense because I used to be a libertarian. And I was like, wait a second, there's humans involved and they make bad
1: decisions. <laughs> you, you have to have some bumpers yeah, up, exactly. otherwise, that someone just someone just ran. Maybe it was Samantha B uh, at the libertarian convention. Yeah. And one of the guys got booed for saying, I, I believe that we should have um, people, the state should mandate tests for driving. We don't just give anyone a car. Yeah. And they were booed by the libertarians. And it's I like, know. oh, so you guys don't understand humans at all, do yeah, you?
0: Yeah, and that's my big... I mean, I I am a... I'm going to be a Gary Johnson voter, a uh, right. libertarian. He was the
1: one who was booed when yeah. he said, "Yes, you should have." He's a
0: pragmatic. He's pra- a pragmatic libert- libertarian. <laughs> That's a subset of the party. And, and guess what? None of these political folks appeal to the pragmatic part you right. always get the extremes cuz that's what sells well that's i guess what, yep. but but I, me, i'm yeah so give me one more book so the other one it, a whole bunch of them is, is cialdini's books on like pers- the science of persuasion influence influence 50 scientific ways to say yes like after reading that guy's stuff it just made me rethink the whole world of of like human thinking and decision making from the perspective of like a marketing person and and how you get influenced and bombarded every day in subconscious ways to do things you may or may not want to do. But it's very important, I think, to be aware of this influence tactics out there. So one, you can defend against it. And then two, you can use it to your advantage, you know, in a sensible, you know, high integrity way.
1: I'm going to uh, out myself. Embarrassingly, I've had that book on my bookshelf for years. I still haven't read it. It's you in my rate queue. Uh, it's, it's you're not unbelievable! The first one. You're not the first one to say that. No. All right, we're down to our last few favorite questions. So, if somebody, if a millennial's coming to you and says, "I'm beginning my career in finance," what sort of uh, uh, what sort of advice would you give them?
0: So, back to our discussion about manual labor, mm-hmm. I would say first get mentally tough. So, do sports, do things that are painful that allow you to be tough, adapt. Because we're in a world where it's going to change. It's going to be tough. It's going to be adapting. And you're competing not with Americans. You're competing with the globe now. So, you know, we have a lot of, you know, my old students are, are Chinese guys. And these guys grind. They work harder, faster, stronger. And that's who you're competing with out there. So unless you're Got to we rise to the occasion. You got to ra- rise to the occasion. I hear, um, I
1: hear a lot of Marine Corps.
0: Yeah, that. so I would say just get mentally tough. It, it don't. It doesn't even matter what you learn. Get mentally tough and know how to adapt and overcome. And then the other thing I, I said here, uh, I just write down in my notes. Is you know i become a, either a robot salesman or a robot manufacturer because I, I feel like in the very near future robots are taken over, and, and so you might as well adapt and train to the future and not you know, be a basket weaver guy anymore because it's not going to pay. And, um, and our final question, what is it
1: that you know about investing today that you wish you knew 15 years ago?
0: Well, I, I wrote down the big three, which have been, uh, you know, endowed upon me by a lot of our investors who are all insanely rich. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. How, how do you guys do that? And there's literally three themes that come out of every single one of these stories Minimize tax burdens, mm-hmm. defer, 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 have horizon, and live below your means. So always be humble. You know, never rise to the level of what you can afford. Just you know, live within your means and enjoy your life with what you got. Um, and and those are the three things, and you'll be all right.
1: Wes Gray, thank you so much for for doing this. This, this has just been absolutely fascinating. We have been speaking with Captain Wesley Gray, formerly of the U.S. Marine Corps, now with Alpha Architect. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not thank uh, our producer, Charlie Vomer, my booker, Taylor Riggs, and Mike Batnick, my head of research, our recording engineer, Jeannie. If you have enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you will see any of the 96 other such podcasts that we've had uh be sure and check out the list of upcoming guests which is really quite astonishing i'm barry ritholtz you're listening to masters in business on bloomberg radio
2: Look ahead, imagine more, gain insight for your industry with forward-thinking advice from the professionals at Cone Resnick. Is your business ready to break through? Find out more at KohnResnick.com slash breakthrough.
1: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Success is more than a destination. All of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a Stiefel Financial Advisor at stiefel.com. That's S T I F E L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas and Company, Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.